Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first show of the Coastal Conundrum podcast. I'm Bill O'Byrne, your host for the Coastal Conundrum show, and I'm pleased to welcome my very special guest host uh, just for today, uh, Peter Ravella, the publisher of Coastal News Today and co-host of the American Shoreline podcast. Welcome, Peter, and thanks for helping me kick off this pod. Well, it's a real honor, Bill, to be on your inaugural show, and uh, we are so excited to have the Coastal Conundrum podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. So really thank you as well. And uh, we really look forward to hearing from from you in this podcast. Well, I'm pretty excited. It's really great. You've got a great lineup already and I'm just uh, glad to be be one of the, one of the group. Um, and uh, actually I was just thinking today that this is actually my second foray into broadcasting. Uh, back in college, I used to be the midnight till 3 a.m. show on uh, the WVA radio that went over carrier current um, out to the dorms. Uh, I think my listenership was probably on the order of tens of people, so I'm hoping to do a little bit better today. You know, the, you're, and, the, uh, you're the only podcast host we have on the network. I think that's had previous broadcast experience, Bill. Well, mine was was uh, not great. Anyhow, Peter, today we're going to be heading up to the Ocean State to talk to Grover Fugate, the just-retired executive director of the Rhode Island Coastal Resources Management Council, which I will try to call the council from now on because that's a very long name. Um, But before we jump into today's show, I wanted to remind our listeners just uh, what this podcast is about. Um, Coastal Conundrum is going to be a show that will focus on the very complicated and oftentimes controversial or contentious art of developing and implementing coastal policies in a very dynamic landscape uh, that attempt to strike a balance between coastal ecology, coastal economies, and coastal communities. Uh, We'll also focus on uh, the landscape that's getting progressively more dynamic uh, as a result of climate change. The show is also going to highlight complex economic, legal, political, and other challenges policymakers face as well as hopefully illuminating some of the successes and best practices of land and water use planning and management at the local, state, and federal level. This show will also take a look uh, at the historical arc of coastal management in the U.S., where it's been and where it may be headed. Um, So back to today's show, um, I'm super excited to have as my very first guest, the one and only Grover Fugate, the former executive director of the Rhode Island uh, Council. And I say one and only because he has been both the one and only executive director for the council and program manager for the Rhode Island Coastal uh, Management Program for the last 34 years until his retirement this just this past Monday. Uh, The council is an independent state agency set up to be the principal planning and management agency for the state's coastal areas. It also serves as the state's coastal zone management program. And as executive director, Grover had responsibility for the development of all policies and programs for the state's coastal program. Um, Grover's gonna talk hopefully a little bit more about his background, uh, but one thing I'm I'm pretty sure he's gonna leave out, uh, but I wanted to note it, is that uh, Grover's innovation and leadership in coastal planning and management has been recognized by a host of folks. Uh, he is the recipient of a number of awards, uh, including uh, the Rhode Island Sea Grant Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, the uh, one award that's very uh, close to my heart is the 2010 Susan Snow Cotter Award for Excellence in Ocean and Coastal Resource Management, given out by NOAA. The 2016 Congressional Service Award for the Rhode Island Ocean SAMP work he did. Uh, the 2000 New England Environment Business Council Outstanding Environmental Energy Technology Achievement Award for the Block Island Wind Farm Project, and that's a mouthful, and uh, the very prestigious uh, 2017 Peter Benchley Ocean Award for Excellence in Solutions. So we're very lucky to have Grover on today uh, to talk about uh, hopefully some of the past successes and challenges he's faced as well as uh, what he thinks the road may be for, uh, or the road may hold for coastal management going into the future. So Pete, this is gonna be a great show, uh, but first we need to hear a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and coastalnewstoday.com are brought to you by 
LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Grover, welcome to the Coastal Conundrum podcast, and it's a pleasure to have you on my first show. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. And congrats are due on a career well done. Um, how does it feel to be retired? I don't think it's fully sunk in yet. I'm still uh, thinking this is just a vacation and next week I got to go back to work. <laughs> so, so you're just sort of wandering around in a daze. Uh, have, you, have you annoyed your wife yet? Not completely yet, no. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, uh, <laughs> full disclosure for the listeners, uh, Gerber and I have been colleagues, well, way back since the 1990s and have worked together on any number of activities um, uh, I was the federal partner to Rhode Island in the National CCM program for a while. Um, but uh, we go back a long time. Yes, we do. Yeah. And yeah. it was a good relationship, too. <laughs> yeah, it, it had bumps here and there, but it was yeah. great. And, and I was just thinking that the last time I saw you was uh, we were on a uh, program evaluation down in um, USVI, and we were leaving from the St. Thomas Airport uh, about two days before Irma struck. That's right. So uh, that was, uh, we've been through some interesting things. Anyways, um, uh, I wanted you, Grover, to uh, tell our listeners, uh, you know, how you, did you get into coastal management? What got you interested and, and excited about the coast and, and what kept, it, kept you in it for 34 years? Uh, it actually goes back before my career with the council. Um, I had, after college, uh, gone to uh, the province of Newfoundland, Labrador, in Canada. Um, I was engaged to my wife at the time and uh, ended up working for the province up there in a number of roles, but uh, I ended up in one where I was uh, what was called a Crown Lands planner. Crown Lands, uh, for those who aren't aware, in particularly the province of Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, the province owns about 90% of the land base, uh, which they call crown lands. And uh, we were the planner for that land base, uh, trying to um, deal with all the competing interests between forestry, mining, uh, agriculture, you name it. As part of that, though, we started to, I just started to get interested in this land water interface um, and how to better plan for that uh, because we not only obviously own the upland areas, but we also own the submerged lands uh, around the province. So as part of that, um, as I started to get interested in, another job came up, which was um, director of shore zone management for the province, uh, which I gladly jumped at uh, and really started to get more deeply involved in this, this land water interface. Principally at the time I was working on uh, trying to figure out what the offshore facilities might be necessary for the development of the province's uh, first offshore uh, oil development. So um, very interesting position. And then this position opened up and I made the jump. So I've been uh, having wet feet for a long time here. 
So you, you, you weren't uh, as enticed by the uh, Tim Hortons coffee as some, uh, some were? Uh, Tim Hortons wasn't on the go at the time I was up there. <laughs> ah. All right. Um, well, well, Grover, uh, so you jumped into this position uh, with the Coastal Resource Management Council uh, and the coastal program, or, or maybe that was a little bit different timing, but could you give the, uh, the listeners just a, a brief description of what the council does uh, in the coastal program and, and really what are some of the more unique things about these programs? Sure. Um, the council was formed actually almost a full year before the Federal Coastal Zone Management Act came into being. And in fact, if you look at the council statute, it seems that the uh, federal statute copied a little bit of the councils at the time. So we were formed in 1971. Um, at the time, there were several large scale projects that were underway um, being proposed and the state wasn't quite sure what to do with those or that the existing structures that they had in place uh, were sufficient to handle those. In addition, there was a lot of concern, uh, particularly by the coastal communities, that that decision-making would be dominated by uh, the, pro the uh, city of Providence and uh, most of the power structure within the, the city of Providence itself. So when the council was formed, it actually was intended to sort of balance that. Um, and what they did is they gave us a very broad planning mandate um, right out the, the gate and made all our regulations essentially subject to that planning mandate. Uh, so we were allowed to not only develop plans, but also to regulate those plans. And then um, what ultimately happened is the council was put in place and it was um, spread among the various coastal communities as well as having some inland representation as well. So it was a well-balanced uh, structure that allowed the interest within the state to be balanced through that process itself. Um, the council is a direct regulatory agency uh, with very broad regulatory authority. So within our jurisdiction, which for some projects encompasses the entire state, we have jurisdiction for everything, uh, as I like to say, from flagpoles to nuclear power plants. So everything from that small little structure all the way up to nuclear power plants, the council had the ability to regulate and deal with. When I came on in 1986, um, the councils had just gone through a major revamping of their coastal program and actually had gone into what is water-based zoning. That is what they did for all the state's waters and that goes all three miles offshore and then there's a circle of small state waters, again, three miles offshore from Block Island. That allows the council then to, within those waters, zone those for particular uses. The program at the time had six use categories that were assigned. Within each of those use categories, um, there were uses that would be allowed and uses that wouldn't be. So just to give you an example, type one was our most conservation oriented waters, for example. Within those waters, we didn't allow for structural shoreline protection or residential docks. Um, then it went all the way up to type six, which were industrial waters. But the other interesting thing about the program is that it allowed for industrial uses, but prohibited those uses within those waters that would detract from the industrial use in those areas. So it protected the ports around the state uh, as part of that. That program, however, was very, very rudimentary uh, and lacked a lot of structure. The council itself uh, was in a bit of turmoil and change. Uh, so that's why I was brought on was to sort of uh, guide it through all that. And then, so what we had to eventually end up doing is, is create a whole permitting structure to better manage the activities that we were, were trying to do. Um, and so that led a lot, obviously, to a lot of changes. Um, and it also led to us taking another look at our statute and bolstering that statute. So when I first came on, just to give you an idea, there was about four pages that dealt with our statute and the Rhode Island general laws. It's now 22. Um, so we were able to bolster things like um, our federal consistency powers, our um, submerged lands and public trust uh, authorities that we had. Uh, 
uh, our enforcement capability. Um, all that got bolstered uh, during the early years of the plan in the 1990s. So there was a lot of work to do that and get it up and running uh, and functioning smoothly. When I first came on, we had a backlog of almost 3,000 applications. Um, there was no computerized system, so nobody knew where the status of those were. It was complete chaos. So we had to build that whole process out from, from the very beginning um, to make sure that we could manage all that and manage it well. Uh, within the first couple of years, we got rid of the backlog and we're on our way then to going and attacking other issues in the program. Uh, Grover, this is Peter Ravella, and I want to extend our uh, thanks as well to you for being on the Coastal Conundrum podcast, Bill's first show, uh, and what a great start to have someone of your experience uh, as a coastal manager, and I have to think one of the longest-serving coastal managers in the history of the country. Uh, but I wanted to uh, ask about this this formative period, 1971 up through 19. 19- uh, 86 in this water-based zoning that you're talking about the designation of shoreline types and allowed practices. Uh, can you share with the audience a little bit how you guys came up with that idea and whether it was something other states, were you following other states or were other states taking an interest? It's a unique approach. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Sure. Um, it's still unique today. We're the only state in the nation that's done it, and very few in the world have even attempted it, let alone implemented it. So it is a very unique approach. What they were doing at the time was uh, the previous program had a very cumbersome uh, decision-making process for whether activity should be allowed or not. Uh, they decided to sort of step back and reevaluate that process that they had. What they were noticing was was that um, the activities that should be permitted along the shore were often typically following a lot of the land use that was already in place uh, adjacent to that shoreline. So they decided to sort of take that a step further and embody that uh, concept, merging that land use zoning with sort of bringing it into the water. And at least for the first 500 feet, try to get those two to match so that the activities were sort of uh, sinking in place. Uh, as an example of that, for instance, our type two waters are primarily residential uses. Um, so we allow for things like residential docks and other types of things, but we do limit the amount of commercial activity that may be allowed in the area, which is consistent with the zoning that's in place. Um, type three waters are marina oriented waters uh, and high intensity boating. Uh, so segments of the shoreline where there were already existing marinas. Uh, they went into that type of zoning, uh, but the uh, zoning did not allow for, for instance, marinas to locate in type two or type one waters. So it was a very sort of innovative way of dealing with that and sort of simplifying the application process. Then for the uses that were permitted within those areas, they then had performance standards that each of those uses had to meet. So again, it provided some uh, greater level of certainty as to what the activity might be and what it would be expected to undergo before it could get a permit um, in those particular waters. So it, um, again, was a very sort of unique process uh, that they went through. Um, the one thing I'll say is if we had to try to put that in place today, I don't think we'd get away with it. Um, but at the time, it seemed to make sense to everybody. And they went around with a dog and pony show and um, went to every coastal community trying to explain it. But I really don't think the general public at the time understood how it was actually going to work, uh, which is probably one of the reasons it was able to get in. The other thing I'll say is um, from our perspective or my perspective, it sometimes led to what I would call regulatory rigor mortis. Um, and that is that once you were locked into a particular water type, say you were type two waters, residential, but it would make more sense to integrate some commercial into that area. You would have to do a water type change. And when you did that water type change, everybody in the woodwork within that particular area came out 
uh, to basically lobby against the change and you had to go through the regulatory process to get there. Um, so it, it made for some interesting hearings uh, and sort of scaling back as to what the, the council could and couldn't do in terms of changes that way. What we eventually learned is that by going through a more sort of regional approach to the planning and then going back and looking at those water types, we could achieve greater success in getting those changes through, but it, it, it uh, was not as site-specific as, as some of the previous changes that were tried and failed. So Grover, let me, let me pull back a little bit from the detail of the, the water use classifications and, and get you to look back uh, over your, of the last 34 years and, and, and tell our listeners or, or about some of the, the major accomplishments that you're most proud of and, and what were some of the keys to the successes? Well, one of the um, things that we've tried to do here in Rhode Island is, um, as, as you heard, we made a number of changes. During that change process, we would meet with the affected groups. Um, that would be anyone from environmentalists to business groups that might be impacted by the regs. We went through what we were going to change, how we were going to change it, and why, um, and then essentially gave them an opportunity to have a look at it and if they could come up with a better way of approaching the problem we were trying to solve, by all means, go for it. We were always open to those changes. That led us to a process where virtually every one of our plans and regulations were adopted. We had nobody objecting to the, those regulations at the time. Uh, they were well worked out with the user groups prior. So that was something I was very proud of, obviously, during the overall process. And that became more evident, I think, in some of the special area management plans that we started to work on. The two uh, recent ones and the most obvious ones that are out there are the Ocean Special Area Management Plan, or Ocean SAMP, as we call it, and the Shoreline Change Special Area Management Plan, or what we affectionately call the Beach SAMP. The Ocean SAMP, um, just to give you a little history on that one, um, and, and Grover, can I can I just um, get you to r remind people what SAMP is so for our Special listeners? Management plan is something that is a uh, it's a notion that comes through the coastal zone manager the federal coastal zone management act that encourages states to get to a greater level of detail in their plans while providing both for coastal economic development as well as environmental protection um, and particularly it's, it's targeted at, at uh, in some areas, at coastal hazards, um, believe it or not, uh, within the Coastal Zone Management Act, they actually did talk about sea level rise back then, and that's embedded in the act. Um, so there are, uh, it's a level of planning that allows you to get into much greater detail than say the state plan, which is more general in nature. Um, so each of our SAMPs is targeting a very specific issue and each of them are different because of that um, and they have allowed us to adapt the program uh, to meet the challenges that we face uh, as we're going through and, and believe me coastal programs because they are that interface when you look at let's just step back and look at coastal economic development um, it is the main driver that is economic development for not only our state, but the other states that are out there. So when we look at the value of the coastal zone, it has an incredible amount of value, obviously, from an economic standpoint. But you're also trying to balance because it's some of the most sensitive economic, I mean, environmental environments that we see out there, salt marshes and, and dunes and those types of things. And each one of those has sort of a, a natural role to play in our environment and the program tries to protect those very sensitive areas while actually encouraging um, development in other areas. So it's a um, balance that we're all trying to achieve in these areas. The ocean SAMP in this case, um, what we were trying to do was um, our energy office had come to us 
the governor at this time was looking to try to develop some sort of domestic energy supply within this state, um, primarily at the time, because this is back during the, the years of the early 2000s when we had $4 a gallon gasoline. And they, he believed at least that um, our energy costs were part of the problem holding Rhode Island back from achieving any other um, greater economic expansion. So they quickly um, started to look at what was out there, obviously gravitate almost immediately to renewable because we don't have coal, we don't have gas, we don't have any of those. And on the renewable side, um, because again, other impediments that are in the upland areas, zoning, land cost, fragmented land, all that um, really limited the ability to go large scale so large scale utility grade would be considered 100 megawatts or more. Um, so the one that immediately pops up when you start to look at that is ocean. And uh, again, when you look at the ocean itself for generating uh, energy, there are a number of ones that are out there, but most of them are still in the experimental phase. The one that was off the shelf and had been used for many years in Europe was offshore wind. Um, so the energy czar came to us and he wanted to put a wind farm straddling state waters off the south end of Block Island and going into federal waters. He wanted to put in uh, approximately two to 300, 3.6 megawatt towers uh, off that area there and asked us what we thought. And I said he would get killed in the permitting process and it would be much worse than Cape Wind who had already failed and um, that we would be better off going at it from a planning perspective. Uh, he agreed to that, gave me a week to produce a budget and we were off. So what the Ocean SAMP did was it brought immediately all the interests that were in those areas. So it brought in the municipalities, the fishermen, uh, the Marine Trades Association, the Coast Guard, the Navy, all these entities were brought in into a steering body sort of um, to help look at the offshore area. The other unique thing that we did in Rhode Island is that we went 30 miles offshore. The reason we did that is because when we looked at uh, offshore wind at the time, it was principally AC transmission and AC transmission at the time was pretty much limited to about 20 miles. Um, so we had that 20 miles offshore, but we needed another 10 mile buffer off of that. So as we started to do our data gathering, we wouldn't end up with an edge effect on our data sets, meaning that if you're determining that there are right whales inside your boundary, the big question you wanna know is, are they just on the other side? So you need that 10 mile buffer. Um, as we went through and did that, um, we started to then look at the areas and try to start screening them somehow. That is, there are areas that are obviously good for offshore wind and there are areas that you definitely don't want it. Um, and so we had to come up with some screening mechanisms to try to, to look at that. Uh, and we didn't have a lot of data. Unlike today, when we look at the regional ocean plans with their data portals, they have an immense amount of data available. We had nothing when we started out particularly on a spatial basis. Um, so we had to look at developing all that and that gets very expensive to develop. So we had to be very cautious and focused where we were developing those very intense data sets. So the screening tools allowed us to then narrow down and start to find those areas that had that potential for offshore wind and that allowed us then to go into greater detail in gathering the data on the, that. The whole process as we were going through this, as we started to gather the data, the scientists were coming in and making presentations to this large body that we had put together. Um, and they started to um, bring forward the data that we were starting to see all on a spatial basis. And the scientists uh, that we had, I was the only one from our agency that actually worked on the plan. All the other people uh, were principally from the University of Rhode Island. I had about 40 senior scientists that were working for me on various issues, everything from avian species to fisheries to ocean engineering. 
and uh, each of those had a specific area and, and set studies they were responsible for to start to put together. And then I essentially controlled the flow of all that, including during the second year of the process, the starting up of the writing of the plan along with the policies and regulations that would become part of that. Ultimately, uh, we got our start in 2008. We finished in 2010, two years. That was our time window that we were given. Um, and we ultimately adopted the plan, put it forward for federal approval. And it was the first federally approved ocean plan in the United States. What ultimately followed then was uh, there was a developer called Deepwater that was sort of waiting in the wings uh, for all that to occur. And then Deepwater submitted a plan for five uh, turbines in state waters. We had designated a renewable energy zone in state waters for that particular use. And um, Deepwater came in, came in and uh, was out the door in roughly nine months for a large scale industrial project that is an amazing time frame. Mm. Um, just to give you an idea, we have a project on Block Island, and this is just off the coast of Block Island, but this small project is for a four acre expansion uh, for a particular marina. It's in the Great Salt Pond. It's got a lot of controversy associated with it, and it's been in and out of the courts for almost 20 years and still has not got its permit. So, um, for this large scale project to be in and out the door in nine months was amazing. The other amazing thing about it is every environmental group that showed up testified in favor of the project at the hearings. The fishing groups that showed up all testified in favor of the project and the tribe showed up and they also testified in favor of the project. That would have never happened without the planning process in place. So that's obviously a, a proud moment for me. The other. Um, can, I, can I just break sure. in here for just a second, Grover? Just because, uh, I mean, that is, it's an amazing testament to, to the planning process. Uh, how much did that cost? Do you have a cost figure for that? Yeah. Um, so to break it out, um, we were, we asked for 6.5. We were given 3.2 million. Sounds like a lot of money, but when you think of the ships that you're using offshore to gather data, some of those platforms are $20,000 a day. So um, your money disappears fast in those areas. So the 3.2 was a lot. We were given the task to come up with a, essentially a pad ready site, meaning that it had to pass the mustering and we would be assured of getting a um, approval through both state and federal entities at the time. So the amount of data that I was gathering was very, very detailed uh, in the renewable energy zone in particular. At the time, the developer was sort of starting up and not um, doing very well in, in the process. So we stepped in and started to backfill some of the areas that they needed. So we got another 2.8 for that. And then the University of Rhode Island uh, had put in about a million in in-kind services between the time for the professors. There were ultimately about 200 people within the university that touched that plan somehow. Um, so that was an in-kind award. And then um, we got an earmark from Senator Reed and uh, Senator Whitehouse for about 600,000 through the Department of Environment. I mean, uh, Department of Energy, sorry. So, so roughly about seven, seven and a half million, something roughly. around there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but again, we're getting down to a pad ready site. Right. And, and there was a lot of, and I totally understand the, the, the cost of trying to get that, uh, uh, benthic, uh, information. It's, it's not inexpensive. Um, so to and, uh, I'll put it in context for you, Kate Wynn spent 4 million on birds alone. Gotcha. Um, one thing, one thing I did want to, and maybe you can just do this really quickly, is uh, can you give uh, the listeners a sense of the type of criteria that you guys use for citing and and determining um, uh, whether or not that would be appropriate sites? Sure. We first started out with uh, what we call no-go zones. Uh, 
So no-go zones um, have some sort of inherent problem associated with them that you definitely don't want to put a, a wind farm in there. So those might be things like um, the navigation lanes in and out of the port. Uh, they might be ferry routes. They might be unexploded ordnance areas. Uh, they might be historic shipwreck areas. Those are the types of things that you map out and you start to pull off immediately. From there, then what you start to do is you start to then look at uh, the first sort of go around is, okay, can we build something there once we've taken those areas off? So you start to look at the engineering feasibility and that starts to take in things like water depth and particularly the geologic conditions on the ocean floor including what's called sub-bottom. So what sub-bottom means is that there's an acoustic signal that's sent down through the sediments to give you an idea of what the layer of the sediments look like, whether it's sand, boulders, those types of things, so that you can look at the constructability of a project. From there, you would start to gather data on things like who are the users? Are there fishermen there? Uh, is the Navy doing certain particular exercises within certain areas? Those types of uses that you might find offshore, you need to understand who's doing what, when, and where. Um, also, at, you, at the same time you're gathering that, then you're also looking at the resources themselves uh, because certain resources have uh, particular uh, restrictions associated with them, uh, endangered species, for example, uh, those types of things, or whether there are um, bird sanctuaries that have been established. Those, all those needed to be understood so we knew, again, from a resource perspective, where were certain species going? Why were they going there? When were they there? And what abundance and distribution were they in those areas? That all starts to give you a picture then of those areas that might prove to be uh, suitable for offshore construction for a wind farm. Well, Grover, I, I think, uh, as I understand it, the process uh, resulted in recognition for the, uh, for the state and for the CRMC uh, for the successful planning and execution of the Block Island uh, project, and well-deserved. I have to say, as a former co-director of the Texas Coastal Management Program, uh, that is a very complicated process to go through 40 scientists you said involved in this team two years of planning stakeholder engagement across the board and then a project approval for five turbines i think these are six megawatt turbines i think is if i'm remembering right a 30 megawatt total that's correct wind yeah. farm project and grover here's here's what i'm just really curious about you you've been running the rhode island program successfully 34 years i mean that the experience and judgment uh in, insight that you have is massive and uh all along the northeast coast there are substantial uh wind power projects that are being thought through planned and uh soon maybe to come to the fore uh, can the process that you used be replicated in other states or could it be made applicable to the federal water leasing program that BOEM is currently uh, trying to run on offshore wind? Is it a good model? Short answer is yes to both of those. Um, from the state perspective, I would say that they would absolutely want to do this. Um, you have to remember that in federal waters, the, the Bureau of Ocean Energy within the Department of Interior is the lead agency for offshore wind. Their function is to get that stuff in the water. They are not necessarily concerned about a state's users or what resources are offshore that may be very important to a state. And the state should be sort of looking at that in a proactive way so that it can use the authorities given through the Federal Coastal Zone Management Act to help um, mold some of those decisions that BOEM might be taking in to protect some of the state's interest in that area. So from a state perspective, um, they absolutely should be looking at it. And BOEM, I would suggest, would be better served by going through this process. And I'll just give you an example. Um, as we were going through the, 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 the recent leases offshore, 
there was a rush to get these offshore wind energy areas designated and leases out the door. Um, and so companies were bidding in on leases that had been established with very little planning going into those areas to understand what the limitations might be within some of those lease areas. Uh, within the last round uh, of leases that went offshore, I mean, companies were paying as much as 134 million for some of these leases. They are under the expectation that they're gonna be able to develop most of those areas within a wind farm. However, because there was very little detail going into this from a planning perspective, um, that's not the case. Uh, and they're, they're gonna have problems. And actually what occurred during this whole process is they started to go forward is um, Boehm had not really talked a lot to the Coast Guard about this. Coast Guard obviously has an interest in navigation, but also search and rescue operations within those areas. Companies were coming in trying to lay out a wind farm so that they would maximize the wind production off of that, which is problematic for the other ocean users, but certainly it was problematic for the Coast Guard in terms of ensuring safe navigation and being able to do search and rescue. Because you can imagine the companies were not lining up, although these leases are right next to each other, their turbine layout was different from each project. And so you couldn't get a consistent aisle going through the towers to allow for boats to transverse through those areas. Ultimately, now everything had to be put on hold um, for the Coast Guard to go back and do that analysis. And they've now come up with what we were recommending from the very start uh, almost three years ago. And that is to adopt a one by one nautical mile grid, east, west, north, south. Um, that one, not, one nautical mile grid is what's necessary for search and rescue to go up and down the aisles. And they have two cardinal directions that they can go in then. And it also allowed the existing fishery to continue to go through that area and fish that area. There will no doubt be changes to the fishery that's going to have to occur, uh, but it gave it a, a degree of predictability that the fishermen could rely on, uh, particularly for navigation in bad weather. So Grover, I, I want to, uh, I, I could sit here and talk all day about uh, some of the ocean samp and, and work that you guys have done. Um, but I just wanted to, for the sake of our listeners, maybe move ahead a little bit because you've, you've got a, a lot of other lessons learned and, and things to, uh, uh, that I think folks would be interested in. Um, so were there any other, uh, just quickly, any other major accomplishments that you wanted to uh, just remind us of? Well, the... While the ocean sand may seem like a complex plan, the beach sand was even sort of an order of magnitude greater than that one in terms of the difficulty. Um, so what the beach sand was intended to do is um, we have direct permitting authority over upland areas, and we're making the same decisions as municipalities, but we take a different perspective. Our first concern when we're looking at a project is does it cause an environmental harm if it makes it over that hurdle, then the next thing we want to know, is it going to survive in that area? Because uh, coastal environments, as we know, are subject to some of the harshest weather that you can see from hurricanes, coastal storms, those types of things. So over the years, we've been noticing changing conditions, and we actually adopted our first climate change policy back in around 2008 uh, as part of the coastal program. And what was becoming evident from a couple of projects that we were looking at is that we needed to sort of step back and take a longer range look at our shoreline to see what was going on and then adapt the permitting program to start to reflect some of those changes that might be necessary uh, to look at development going into the future. Um, so when we first started out, we actually started out about a year before Sandy putting the project outline in place. And then Sandy occurred and through the Sandy appropriations that opened a lot of doors for us in terms of getting funding into the door to start some of the studies that we've done. So uh, to give you an idea of the, the tools, so we built tools down to the property level. That's where our decisions are made at the local level. That's where we make decisions. 
is not at the municipal level, it's down to the individual property level. A lot of that obviously is also because of the way our law works in this nation. Um, we can't, we have to take into account private property interest as part of the decision-making process. Let me put it that way. Um, the other thing that's interesting is we have not had a major event since 1938 here. That was the uh, 1938 hurricane that hit. Even the 54 wasn't as bad as the 38. Um, and we had no history since then of what might occur or what it would do to transform our shoreline. Um, so we wanted to build that in place to give us a better understanding and then sort of also at the same time, build these tools out so that they could not only serve our purposes, but also the municipalities. Um, so what we've been able to develop in that is uh, we now have a set of online tools called storm tools. On that, you can go on and look your property up and it will take you right down to your backyard. And you can start to see what sea level rise might do. And what we've done is we've just gone in one foot, two foot, three foot. So we went in those increments without establishing time scales associated with them at this point. So much of the science that we know relative to sea level rise and climate change is still developing. Um, and the estimates for the sea level rise uh, curves in our state, for example, changed three times during the development of this plan. We went from three to five to 6.6 .6 to now 9.6 at the high end for looking at that. We use the high end curves for a number of reasons. One, to capture some of that uncertainty that's associated with this um, science that's still developing, but also the we wanted to deal with the projects that we come across ourselves uh, as an agency. And a lot of that is major infrastructure. So some of this has a design life of 100 years or more. So we needed to have that sort of built in with that safety margin for those large scale projects. The last thing you want to do is put a bridge up, find out that it's under designed and have to go back and put another bridge up because of that, that oversight. Mm -hmm. So we put all that in place. We also are now capable of going down and looking at a storm, any storm we want now, and looking at the individual structures along the shoreline and estimate the damage to each of those structures from a 100-year event or a 100-year event plus three feet of sea level rise all the way up to 12 feet of sea level rise. The reason we go to 12 is the 9.6, we rounded off to 10 feet. But there are extreme high tides that we deal with here in the state that happen six to eight times a year, and they're getting more frequent now. But those six to eight times a year, they will add a foot and a half to two feet of sea level rise on top of the existing tidal uh, epoch that we have already. So um, hence the 12 foot to capture that 10 foot plus the extreme high tide. Wow. Uh, Grover, so I, I got to tell you, uh, the rational, <laughs> this is a, ra a very rational approach. And in, in uh, these days, I, I prize it very highly that rational decision-making exists. And Bill, it's one of the reasons I really love the show you're doing with Coastal Conundrum is to present um, the complex trade-offs and analysis and details of what does it take to manage shorelines I mean, and, and coastal resources. Uh, people along the American shoreline may not understand how much effort goes into trying to understand the dynamics of the shoreline, the economic interests involved, how to build policies that are sensible, forward-looking. And uh, Grover, I, I just think what the Rhode Island has been able to accomplish is really impressive. But here's a question I would like to ask about that. Um, Anytime you engage in these kind of long-term planning exercises, of course, you are uh, affecting the economic interests of parties that are on the shoreline or wish to be. And uh, how did that work for you as the executive director in uh, this three-decade career? Uh, was there pressure from that community? How did you contend with it? How did were you able to work to a point of consensus and understanding? Can you talk about some of the, the political pressure or economic pressure 
that comes with being a state coastal manager? Well, as a state coastal management, there's obviously both those pressures are in play. And you need to understand them, you need to balance them, and you need to deal with them. Um, it sort of goes back to the, the little, talk, uh, the little um, bit I put in about our regulations and dealing with the parties that may be affected by that. What we've been able to do in, in this latest plan that we've been able to do is, is we brought in as a partner the banks, the insurance companies, the realtors, the builders, all those groups that would typically be impacted by this type of thing, we brought them in. And then we started to go through the science that we were developing. And we said, if you guys can challenge our science, fine, let's go for it. Let's, let's have that debate. Fortunately, uh, all those entities that we tend to deal with are a little bit more perhaps progressive than in some areas around the country. And they embraced it. Um, the head of the Builders Association here, a fellow by the name of Dave Caldwell at the time, said, you know, my clients demand that I build to the highest standard possible. Um, I have no problem in what you're doing. Uh, and he said, actually, the cost is negligible over the cost of the structures that we're putting up ourselves. So what we were trying to do was, if they were going to build a structure, and we weren't saying necessarily that you couldn't build, what we were saying is that you need to build that structure in mind with the changes that you're going to see on your site. And maybe that requires you to even look at choosing a different site or maybe a different place on the site or even then adapting the structure so that you realize that it's got a finite timeline associated with it and that you may have to either give up that structure or relocate it. Um, so all that was done with those groups in play at the time. We didn't hide anything from anybody. Uh, we went through it. But I think the key is if you can have good science, and we, were, we used the University of Rhode Island a lot. In this case, for the beach sand, we had the Ocean Engineering Division. Uh, the people that they have are some of the best in the nation uh, that work on this stuff. And so we were able to fall back to that science-based issue and said, okay, look, here's what we're trying to do. And it's based on this science. If you can challenge the science, then let's have that debate. But if you can't, then we got to move forward and start looking at some of these issues. Wow. So Grover, that's that's really interesting, and I and I want to focus for just a second on one of that those groups of stakeholders, and that's the the municipal or, or local governments, and 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 one thing that's been very interesting over my career has been looking at how different states have addressed that um, state level uh, program and how that interacts with local governments. So could you talk about? A little bit about intergovernmental relations. Um, what's what's been the relationship between the, your program and the local governments, um, and and how have you navigated what has traditionally been local control of land use, uh, and especially when you're you're dealing with um, a SAMP that may uh, affect their property tax base. Uh, so, anyways, uh, if you could just talk to that uh, for just a sec. Sure. Um, and it's, it's a very good question because um, typically uh, many states have this home rule um, that they're dealing with, meaning that the locals are supreme in many of these areas. Um, our permitting program, as I told you, goes into the upland areas. Before somebody can come into us, however, with a permit, they have to show that they're going to meet the local building requirements and standards that are in place. If they can get through the local process, then they can come to us. And then we start to kick in. Our permitting people themselves are constantly interfacing on a daily basis with the building officials, the planners, other municipal officials about various projects they're working on and trading information back and forth. We are well respected by the municipalities as experts within our area. Um, and uh, our ability to look at buildings and survivability of structures, those types of things. The local officials realize that 
our expertise in those areas is superior to those. So they, they respect us for that. Um, so it's allowed for that sort of congenial uh, process to, to develop over the years. The beach stamp sort of presents sort of a different conundrum now. Um, and I'll, I'll explain that. Um, many of the officials that we're dealing with are, are split amongst the, the town. So you have a building official, you have a planner, um, you may have a DPW director, all those. It's interesting because if you had a long time DPW director, we didn't have to convince him that things were getting worse and they needed to change and deal with it because he had been seeing that or she had been seeing that for 20 years now. Uh, areas that never used to flood are now flooding, uh, those types of things. The building official understood it because they're rooted in building performance and those types of things. But the ones we were running a little muck were the, um, the planners. The planners are very focused, particularly on the aesthetics of what the community looks like. What we're trying to achieve, particularly if you start to look at sea level rise for buildings, one of the ways you achieve that is elevation. They did not want to see structures elevated any more than they were for the current flood program. Um, they didn't want additional freeboard being built in uh, to ensure the survivability into the future. It's sort of an interesting thing because these planners were having a tough time trying to get through their head that yes, it may not be as attractive as what you have today, but that's your tax base. You're gonna need that going into the future. And if you don't provide and assure this survivability of those structures going into the future, your tax base will start to diminish and diminish rapidly. Uh, we did a study for each of the towns and we took our models. So I said, as, as I told you, we could go down to the individual structural level and predict the damage from a storm. We did that for many of the towns taking their tax base, in other words, the tax assessor records and merging that with our damage estimates, structure by structure. In the town of Charleston, for example, nearly 50% of their tax base could disappear overnight through a 100 year event. Hmm. That's a very tough thing for a municipality to get through their head though, because it's something they haven't seen. It's may or may not happen as far as they're concerned. What we knew is that it's not a question of if it's when. Um, and so those, those are sort of uh, the, the, the discussions that we've had. The interesting thing, though, is the builders got it and the builders were pushing. So we managed to get through legislation that even though some of the municipalities were not enamored with it, we were able to get it through because the builders supported us on that uh, going through the process. So we now have, um, for instance, uh, you can achieve freeboard up to five feet or if you want to use our predictions for sea level rise plus a 100-year event, you can use our maps, and that will not count towards your zoning variance. So to understand that, you have to realize that in this state, most houses are capped at 35 feet. Hmm. But they deduct the freeboard and the uh, structure height for a raised foundation to get it above the floodwaters. The freeboard is an extra safety margin. It is above and beyond what the flood program requires to give you that extra safety margin uh, as part of that so that they can choose either five feet or our maps now to get their buildings without having that take away from the overall building height uh, as part of that. So this is some of the interesting challenges, but I think looking into the future, I think what's what, what really it's going to be a problem we could spend a whole show on this and maybe if you want to at some point we can but there is a huge issue coming at us uh, freddie mac has already predicted that we are looking at a downturn um, in real estate worse than the 2007-2008 uh, bust and it's going to be permanent and it's going to be due to sea level rise if you look at and let's just take norfolk virginia for example Norfolk is experiencing approximately 20 days of flooding a year. Uh, that's problematic, yes, and it's, it's a, a pain for many of the residents. Within that first foot of sea level rise, though, 
And for us, that could be within the next 20 to 30 years. Norfolk goes from 20 days of flooding a year to 300. Hmm. You can't sell a house when high tide is on your front yard a couple of times a week. Your property value goes to zero. Your insurance skyrockets. Um, it just becomes an untenable situation for homeowners. Uh, and it's staring us at the face and coming at us. Well, in overall terms, it's coming at us relatively rapid. So, Grover, you've given us, uh, or, or you've let us know what gives you pause um, looking into the future. Um, and wow, looking, you know, with the COVID-19, uh, the, uh, the, and the subsequent fiscal crisis, the heightened awareness of kind of social inequalities that we're looking through now, are there, are there other things that, that give you pause, but also are there things that give you hope? Uh, and, and, and what would you kind of say to, uh, coastal managers that are just starting to, you know, add on their careers? So I, I think, you know, it's interesting because we were having a discussion with some people the other day, uh, some lawyers and stuff. There's a lot of interesting parallels between the COVID issue and climate change, um, in that they're both not well understood. Um, uh, they're both well underestimated at the time. Uh, by a number of government officials, not taken very seriously, but both are very damaging going into the future. Um, the difference is, is that COVID hit us within a matter of a month or so and knocked the hell out of us. Um, climate change is going to be a more slow-moving issue, but not um, without its impact uh, going forward, particularly to the coastal areas. Go back to that statement where I said most of our coastal, most of our economy is in the coastal areas. So we're facing a, a huge economic threat uh, going into the future. I think for coastal managers, they need to understand that and they need to get on top of it and they need to start working with municipalities to help them better understand and plan for what the options are. There's a huge opportunity for all of us to start to understand and try to come up with tools to deal with this. Um, we're just in the nascent stages of looking at this issue and trying to come up with solutions that are there um, to, to allow us to move forward. Um, and they're undiscovered at this point. They're going to require a lot of the out-of-box out thinking. The other thing I think paired, and it's, it was sort of a nice pairing because when we started the ocean stamp, we had already been doing a lot of climate change work. One of the things we indicated is that if we were going to ever attack climate change, we needed to start to move to renewable energy and get off the carbon-based fuels. When you look at the potential of offshore wind, and let's just take that segment from, say, Boston down to Virginia. Um, and again, this is looking at some work that was done by the University of Maryland, but there is the potential there to offset almost 70% of our current carbon-based fuel systems with wind um, wow. and you don't pay for it. It doesn't generate carbon emissions. Um, and it is uh, a new industry that's just ready to, it's on our doorstep right now. When we first started the ocean sand, offshore wind was sort of waiting to see whether it could be done or not. And when the Block Island wind farm went in, um, it created an explosion now along our shoreline in the northeast here. So to give you an idea, New York is now looking for approximately 9,000 megawatts. Connecticut wants 2,000 megawatts. We are at approximately 1,000 megawatts. And Massachusetts is at 3.6 or 3,600 megawatts uh, in terms of offshore wind that they want to purchase and put into the grid. It literally exploded overnight in this area as a result. So there's a lot of opportunities that the environment is constantly changing. You have to be aware of those changes and you want to try to get in front of them and not be reacting to them. Grover, that's, that's amazing. That's, uh, that's a lot of structures in the water. And that, that leads me to, to say that I think we, we need to have another show to talk about. There's, there's so many things 
that uh, questions that I still had um, and that, that this conversation has prompted. So uh, I'll have to give you, a, uh, get an invite uh, out to you to come back and, and talk to us about some of these. Um, but before we, before we end, I, I just wanted to uh, just say, is there uh, any final thoughts that you had on our show today? And- uh, you know, I think the, the interesting thing about the coastal area is um, it is constantly changing. Um, there's all sorts of pressures on that environment. Um, and it's going to require a lot of work into the future to continue to balance those interests. And the coastal regions do demand a balance being placed. A balance being, uh, we're still providing for the economic growth and development in these areas, but we're also protecting our most precious resources, the resources that we often think of as defining us as individuals. I mean, in Rhode Island, we're the ocean state. Um, our ocean, our bay is part of us. It's in our blood. Um, so we we have to constantly seek that balance going forward. And uh, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah, we do. And, and Grover, for the, the listeners that might want to uh, read up uh, a little bit more about some of the projects that you've done, some of the SAMPs, uh, can you give uh, our listeners a, a website to go to? Uh, sure. It's at crmc.ri.gov. Great. And so, Grover, I just wanted to thank you so much for being on uh, the, the podcast today. And Peter, also thank you. And uh I think this was great, and and um, I'm really ready to uh, have another discussion with you, Grover. Fantastic! Looking forward to it.